Now, precious Jesus, we quiet our hearts, we quiet our minds, and we trust in you, Lord, that uh, through your word, you will do great and wonderful things, things that we have not imagined or even conceived. And we thank you, Lord, this morning that in your house, we can hear your word and allow it to change us, to make us more like yourselves. Help us, Lord God, to be your better people. Help us, we pray, to move, Lord, from strength to strength and help us to accept those corrections that you, as our gentle shepherd, uh, need to give to us as your people. But above all, help us to take encouragement and strength from your word because it is that light. It is a light that uh, none other can give. And so may, through your word, our hearts and our lives be so lightened that we might clearly see the path before us and so walk with great vigor and strength towards your kingdom. In Jesus' precious name we pray, and all the people of God said a mighty amen. Well, we are continuing in our series, uh, Unrepentant Rebellion. And I don't want to let the title of the series intimidate you, for I offer this series of messages as a way for us to look beyond all the window dressing of this world in favor of going in and meeting the grand shopkeeper himself who is in charge of the business of this world and even our lives. Now, prior to Easter, there is a thread or strand to our spiritual journey that is meant to accentuate death. Well, why is that the case? Because at Easter, we celebrate life. Not just anyone's life, but Jesus' life, his life that he desires to pour into us as his followers. Why? Because he wishes to change us from our own self-preconceptions to being creatures whose greatest fulfillment in life is found in praising him. He, and not us, is the object of our devotion, and Easter becomes the incontrovertible focal point that puts all the emphasis upon the cosmic work of Jesus Christ. For none other can redeem us and save us. Not history, not tradition, not fanciful invention, philosophical speculation, relational conjugation, nor unexpected financial gain. Even if you did not go out and procure a lawyer before you bought your uh, jackpot winning lottery ticket, yes? His resurrection isn't just a biological miracle, but it shows that biological life as it begins to wind down does not have the last and the final word. It does, it does not have that, that word of meaning and power and purpose because that all comes, of course, from the cross. And as we move through Lent, we begin to embrace those promises of not only the cross, but the empty tomb. If the resurrection is any one thing, my friends, it is first the experience of how things were meant to be. So we are not now living as things were meant to be. Uh, recently, I just uh, finished watching a, an HBO uh, series on the life of our second president, John Adams. And uh, 
Towards the end of his life, as he was an elderly man, there was an um, artist, a, uh, a painter by the name of John Trumbull. Uh, you can look him up. And he painted this magnificent uh, portrait picture of the Second Continental Congress. Now, a lot of people, when they look at that uh, portrait, they oftentimes think this is a painting of the, Declar the signing of the Declaration of the Independence, but it isn't. It's of the Second Continental Congress. And so Adam, though uh, aged and elderly as he was, Trumbull wanted to get, and he was one of the last few surviving uh, individuals who put his signature upon uh, those documents. He, uh, Trumbull wanted to bring John Adams in and, and for John Adams to give his opinion upon uh, this portrait. And so John Adams looked it over really well and he was somewhat critical of it because he said, well, the first thing is half of the people that are here in this portrait, uh, they weren't even present in Continental Hall to, to sign this particular document. You see, what Adams knew is that there is a reality, the reality of who was there and who was not there. Um, and in this portrait, they actually uh, had Thomas Jefferson standing on uh, John Adams' foot. And so John Adams kind of brushed that off and said, well, that's not really all that significant, you see. But Adams was the one who was able to look at that portrait and say, well, what really went on there that day? And what is just sort of an illusion that the artist has, has placed within the portrait upon closer examination? Well, the days before Easter, they give us this opportunity to look into our lives to acknowledge what really is and what are those things that we wish things would be. Now the problem with postmodern faith is that we have now scrubbed Christianity clean. The cross is now a very sanitized presentation of the sufferings of Christ. But in reality, we know that it was a bloody, gory, inhuman, and heartbreaking event for all those that witnessed Jesus' suffering upon the cross. Well, a few years back, um, I had the opportunity to uh, study in Wales, and I was uh, very gripped because uh, upon our tour of some of these uh, very ancient Celtic uh, churches, uh, we entered uh, one chapel, a uh, uh, fully stone masonite on the inside, but what really grabbed my attention was, so the, the walls kind of came up like, like a barrel, kind of as an arch. It had a curve to it, but when you stepped in through the door of this church, you had these huge portraits, these huge pictures of, of skeletons, of, of bones, and and I mean, these things must have been like 10 or 12 foot tall. And there was, you know, three or four on this wall and three or four on that wall. And it was just so very, very gripping. But it said to the worshiper as they were coming into church, two things. Number one, I want you to be reminded of your own mortality. And that one day we will all pass from this life to the next. And you couldn't but sit within that church and see those kind of uh, large size, oversized skeletons. Be reminded of your own death. And that's exactly what they wanted to convey. But they also wanted to convey that death does not have the last word. Because the resurrection 
gives us life, triumph, and victory over the grave with God's assurance. You see, if anything, the presentation of the gospel always forces us into crossroads of interpersonal friction where we are asked to choose, as you would have if you were a Celtic worshiper in Wales hundreds of years ago, are we going to choose between death or are we going to choose between death and life? Those two things, God or ourselves. So these days are meant to remind us of the shortness of life and that while in this life we have choices to make, all of us have choices to make. Now, some of us make the right choices which lead us to repent of our wrong choices. So what is the wrong choice? Turning our backs on God? Rebelling or simply going along with ecclesial complacency where the church never demands anything of us or our faith? You see, there is um, uh, an elderly woman. Um, I heard this story about her. She had just returned home uh, from church uh, when she was startled by an intruder that was inside her house. And she caught the man in the very act of uh, robbing her home of its valuables. And uh, just having come from church, she uh, shouted out, uh, she yelled at the robber, Stop! Acts 2.38, which as you know is a passage that says, repent of your sins, you know, start all over again, have a brand new beginning, a brand new life. And so when the burglar heard this, he stopped, he froze dead in his tracks. And so the woman calmly called the police and explained what she had done. And as the officer arrived and cuffed the man to take him in, he asked the burglar, he said, well, why did you just stand there? All the old lady was doing was, was yelling scripture verses at you. Scripture, replied the burglar. She said she had an act and 238s, for goodness sakes. <laughs> So a faith in Christ demands nothing, that demands nothing of us, produces nothing, except an empty space of meaninglessness, you see. If we come to Christ in order to see him as he really is, we must embrace that first word of the gospel, which is repent. It is through repentance that we really see ourselves for who we are wrongdoers. Like Esau in Genesis chapter 25, we, we, we sell our inheritance to Jacob all because we were too short-sighted to think of anything more important than how hungry we were that day or what our appetite is. And so Esau ends up selling his birthright just to get some porridge just to stay uh, strong, you see. When we are rebels, we are at war with God and with none other. When we are at war with others, it is only because we are at war with God. Others only become the innocent bystanders of our own individual willfulness against the divine will of Almighty God. When we cannot love others, it is because we cannot love God. 
when we are at war with God, we still have not heard that first word of the Gospels, which is repent. That said, no matter how hard we fight or resist God's will in our lives, God's will will prevail and triumph. Didn't Jesus say to Saul in Acts chapter 9 and verse 5, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now what does that mean? That means, you know, Saul, it is hard for you to overturn the ultimate purposes of God for your life because it's not going to happen. So the question before us in these pre-Easter days is, will you go along with what God asks of you or will you fight Him tooth and nail every step of the way? We must ask this question of ourselves. For the call to repentance isn't for your neighbor. As much as your neighbor might apply repentance to their lives, the call to repentance is for you and for I. And so what will it take for us to have a consequential faith, one that means something to us and changes us from the inside out? So the coming of Easter invites us to deal with ourselves. I know, yuck, right? Who wants to deal with themselves. The rebellious nature, as Jesus dealt with Saul's rebellious nature, it must always be dealt with by God. Didn't Jesus say to Thomas in John chapter 20, Thomas, stretch forth your hand and place your hand and your fingers in the holes that are in my hands and in my feet and, 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 the, and the wound that is in my side. You see, Jesus was dealing with Thomas's rebelliousness of, I'm not going to believe this thing called the resurrection until I see it. And so as a priority for Jesus, he said, I got to go deal with that. That rebelliousness that is, that is rejecting the truth of the resurrection. And so what Thomas was dealing with in that post-resurrection event was this profound and eternal question. Who is Jesus? But more importantly, who is Jesus in relation to me? You see, here's my hunch. My hunch is that Thomas wasn't just a doubter about the resurrection. Oh no, not at all. You see, anyone can doubt the resurrection, and perhaps understandably so. Thomas, you see, was a doubter about everything in life. So when Jesus went to deal with him about the truth of his resurrection, he also wanted to deal with him about all of the other doubts within his life also. You see, Jesus wasn't the first person that Thomas doubted, but in standing before Jesus, Jesus was the last person that he would ever doubt. Remember that. In fact, I believe that, that Thomas had a lifelong proclivity and tradition of habitual doubting, and Jesus' resurrection just forces this twist in his life right out of him and into the open. And our Lord embraces him. You see, no wonder so many people don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, because if they did, Jesus would come to them. As Jesus came to Thomas to untwist all those pernicious folds in their life that so completely closed them off to the majestic promises of everlasting life. How can we, using the words of Kenda Dean in her book, 
almost Christian, participate in God's plan to write this capsized world if we cannot write our own capsized lives. And so it all begins with who we think or believe Jesus to be. Now, some of us believe Jesus to be an idea. Great idea that somebody came up with. But we do not believe that he is a companion. And we hold to the safe idea that not all that much is at stake in following Jesus. How is it that this man can demand my life and my all? Again, Kenda Dean writes this. What if the church models a way of life that asks, not passionate surrender, but ho-hum assent? What if we are preaching moral affirmation, a feel-better faith, and a hands-off God instead of the decisively involved, impossibly loving, radically sending God of Abraham and Mary who desired us enough to enter creation in Jesus Christ and whose spirit is active in the church and in the world today. So what does Jesus evoke in you? Something? Ho-hum assent? Or decisive involvement? The answer to that question, well, it's amply given in the beheading of John the Baptist. See, John the Baptist didn't sign up for ho-hum assent. He signed up for decisive involvement. And it cost him his head. And it cost Jesus the cross. So how do you see Jesus? What is the event He has used to change your heart and your mind about Him from this day forward and forevermore? A church had to um, recently go through uh, that uh, lovely uh, uh, experience of, of changing uh, ministers, you know, it's never an easy task. Um, and, and so as the, as the call process unfolded, the, the congregation decided to call their first ever woman pastor. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the parishioners was having a very hard time accepting this, not because of any prejudice, but because his favorite pastime was, was fishing, you see, and he had always taken the pastor fishing with him. And so he automatically assumed that a woman pastor might not know anything about fishing at all, and in this particular case, he was right, you see. But when uh, she, the woman pastor, found out that this gentleman uh, always had this relationship with pastors in the past, uh, she approached him and she announced, she said, hey, next time you're going, taking your boat out and you're going on a fishing trip, I would love to come. Would you be open to taking me along with you? And the time came when they decided to go, the two of them, and when they had gotten into the boat and anchored down, he found out very quickly that she knew nothing about baiting a hook. So he had to bait the hook for her. And when she hooked her first fish, he realized that she knew absolutely nothing about how to reel the fish in. So he had to help her to reel it in. Then, of course, he had to take the fish off of the hook as well. And the result was that the man was really getting no fishing done for himself that day. Then the wind began to blow, and so she was cold and shivering and sitting there in the boat. So she mentioned that she should have brought her jacket with her uh, from the car. And so he said, well, 
um, how about uh, I'll, I will pull up anchor and uh, uh, I'll take you back to the shore to get it. And she says, oh no, she says, uh, don't, don't bother, I'll get it myself. And with that, she stood up, got out of the boat and began walking across the water to the shore. And the man sat there shaking his head sadly, sadly just like I figured, can't swim either. <laughs> Now, this tongue-in-cheek parable is, of course, all about what people fail to see in their relationship with God that is right before them. We all do it. I do it. You do it. So now we come to pry off that most pernicious barnacle of postmodern life that has attached itself to the underside of that precious ship we call the church. And it's this, that Jesus doesn't judge. What this idea presupposes is that there is no longer a center of morality, no clear universal understanding of right from wrong, because what's right for you may not be right for me, and what's wrong for you may not be wrong for me, and we, around and around we go. And, and certainly no consequences if we never get to that place that Thomas once did where he broke down and cried when Jesus confronted him and he, he took it all on board and then he said, my Lord and my God. That is, if there is a right from wrong, my friends, there are consequences, amen? And if there are consequences, then a judgment. And if there is a judgment, then someone's got to do the judging. It's just like that. But somehow we have allowed the sugary treacle, that's British for molasses syrup, of modern life to convince us that Jesus is not our judge. He's just a convenient friend. Though he sees our sins, though the spikes of Calvary were pounded without mercy through his wrist to forgive our sins, he's always willing just to wink and nod and look the other way. It is what Kenda Dean calls Christian parasitology, like a parasite. What is Christian parasitology? Well, here are its five tenets. Number one, a good God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. That's number one. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Yeah? Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed kind of as a handyman to come by and resolve a problem. That's about the only time that we need him. More as of a convenience than anything else. And number five, when people die, they all go to heaven. Now these ideas, of course, are parasites sucking the life right out of the church. And these popular postmodern platitudes, which by the way, those five tenets of 
Christian parasitology or moralistic therapeutic deism, they emerged from a survey of 3,000 teenagers. That it is teenagers that feel those things about God and Christ and, and, and faith. There are no consequences. There is no judgment. Funny. When Acts chapter 10 and verse 42 declares, He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one whom God has appointed as judge of the living of the dead. Strange, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 heralds, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. John chapter 5 and verse 22 does not equivocate where it says, Moreover, the Father judges no one. He has entrusted all judgment unto His Son. John chapter 5 and verse 27 further elaborates, and he has given all authority to his son to judge because he is the son of man. And then finally, John chapter 12 and verse 47 through 50 puts this stake in the ground. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come into the world to judge, but to save the world. Yes, indeed. Amen. But he, Jesus goes on to say, there is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words that I have spoken will condemn him on the last day. The judgment then is not based upon the words that we have read. Rather, it is based upon the people that we have become because of the words that we have read. And so before we breathe our last, there is this small window of opportunity called three score and ten, as it says in Psalm chapter 90, and it puts it this way, whereby we might overturned the capsized lives that we sometimes lead. Jesus does indeed judge and His Word all the more. Search your heart and you will find this to be true. Sociologists paint American Christians as restless people who come to church for some, the same reasons that some people go to diners. Hmm, interesting kind of analogy there. For someone to serve us who knows our name. For a filling stew that reminds us of home and makes us feel loved. Even while it does a number on our spiritual cholesterol. So what's your spiritual cholesterol level like? When I was 15, I went to church. I went to the teen church. And we were packed in like sardines, shoulder to shoulder. There must have been 300 300 teenagers within that teen church. Just teenagers. And then I heard Pastor George Grace, a Vietnam veteran, preach and speak. This is my testimony, my friends. He was the youth pastor back then. And when I heard him preach, everything changed for me. My capsized boat, when I heard that sermon, it just was turned right side up again so that it could float and that I could begin to sail through my life, everything. And that day, Pastor George Grace put a Bible in my hand for the very, very first time. And he said these words, go home and read the Gospel of John. Why did he say those words to me? Because before he was a Christian, 
There was a gentleman who worked at Eastman Kodak Company that befriended him and put his very first Bible in his hands and said, go home, George, and read the Gospel of John. And so Pastor George Grace was just continuing that tradition even with me. And I didn't even know what the Gospel of John was. But I stepped out and I took a chance and I opened it up and I began to read the Gospel of John. And I locked myself in my bedroom for two days straight. My mother was knocking at my door. Are you in there? Are you still alive? What on earth is going on? You see, yes, it's true. The Gospel of John is true. True, yes, that's what I need. Oh, yes, that's what I need to change. And He is the one that I need to embrace. Not as a casual acquaintance, kind of as a you know, friend from long ago, but as my Savior, as my Lord, as my judge. For my name is Daniel. And in the Hebrew it means God is my judge. And so may this also be as true for you as it is for me. So won't you join me in prayer this morning? Father, we take it for granted sometimes that you are our judge as well as our loving Savior. And sometimes we want all of the love but none of the judgment. Sometimes we want all of the freedom of personal choices that goes along with living in this postmodern age and none of the consequences. And so we pray today, Heavenly Father, that you would deliver us from our own rebellious nature, that you would give to us, Lord, a will through the power of your Holy Spirit that says yes to you. Yes, we will, Heavenly Father, do your will and submit to you and do your bidding in this life so that when we stand before you in the next, you may say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Amen.